I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Dahlias, damsons and damaged lawns. Yes, you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. After a summer break from problem solving, today our expert panel are delving back into the mailbag to tackle some of your thorny gardening questions. Plus, after a summer of extremes, we've got some first aid tips for grass and lawns that have been battered by drought and flood. But before we address the problems, let's hear a report from a summer success story. Across the UK, the RHS Community Outreach Team work with groups and disadvantaged areas to bring people together in projects that create and maintain communal garden spaces. Our aim is to help more people share in the benefits of plants. This summer saw the culmination of an exciting project to create a new garden at the Shearwater Estate in Woking. My name is Eddie Valletta and I work for Mascot, which is short for the Maybury Shearwater Community Trust. The garden idea came about through a group called Shearwater Together, which is formed of statutory groups, now Wisley Gardens and other people, local residents, to just allow the community to meet, to connect, to build friendships and hopefully that will be a lasting thing. And the gardening project is just one of those things that we wanted to introduce and it's coming about now. I'm Kate Orchard and I'm part of the community outreach team at RHS Wisley Garden. This summer we were invited by the Shearwater Together community group to transform two spaces at Dartmouth Avenue shops. Couldn't you have got someone a bit younger to do the watering? Of course not. They're picking on you, Tony. (laughs) How old are you, Tony? 93. Every time you tell me that I keep forgetting because I can't believe that you're 93. Traditionally, RHS Wisley Garden students come up with a design project as part of their Level 4 horticultural diploma. But in the past, very often they'd create a garden design that would be for a private garden. So what was exciting about this project for us is that it was the first time that we've tried to do this in a public setting, in an estate where there's 3,000 homes and many of the people living in that place perhaps have little to do with gardening and plants. I'm Autumn Shaw, I'm the art textiles teacher at Bishop David Brown School. I think this is building in with the community. I think it's really nice getting the community to work together, especially on something that's quite creative and quite outdoorsy. I think it's really nice. So we're just putting the plants in on the cable spool planter on one of these. 
Just so there's a mixture of herbs here. So we've got rosemary and mints, a bit of basil and chive and sage as well. Nick Keenan, who designed the garden, wanted to have a mixture of plants that could be divided and shared. These are on raised planters, so they're kind of tables. So we hope there'll be like a bit of a conversation point. People can sit around and we've got some really lovely herbs. So we've got lemon verbena, which is beautiful. And they call that apothecary's gold. We've got rosemary that Autumn's just about to put in. Thyme that I'm going to hand to Yasmin to put in here. <laughs> Do you want to put that in there? So yeah, the idea is that we don't just have garden plants that will be growing in the flower beds around us, but plants that people can eat. And that was something that the community really wanted. Hi, I'm Yasmin Gordine. I work for Woking Borough Council. I'm the community engagement officer for Shearwater and Maybury. There was a bowl planting session back in October and then it came to light that the community would really like to have a community garden and a space for them to sit in and get involved in and obviously through that process we went to the students of the horticultural college and they designed gardens and we went through it and we picked the students having a voice and we met, we've come to have this garden here in Shearwater that I think will be used well everyone wants it everyone's quite passionate about gardening here and due to the lack of green spaces around then i think it's going to be a really really lovely area that the community can get involved in i've done numerous projects before within communities but this is at my first community garden that i've done i would very happily do it again somewhere else it's been a great experience working with both the students and the staff at wisley has been phenomenal it's really nice because my area of expertise isn't gardening so it's nice to have them on board and tell you what you're doing and give you some guidance and it's been a real real fun time i'm rebecca and i work for surrey county council well we've been trying to work with people who live in Shearwater to give them a place to be proud of so this is what the neighbours said they wanted they wanted somewhere that looked good and made the area look cared for and somewhere they could actually spend time together so Wisley have come along to help us do a great job so here we are today putting all the plants in for our outreach work this is really important it's not really about putting a garden in well it's really about relationships so people coming together having a chat having a cup of tea and that's actually what's happening now it's really lovely and the planting day today is important because we want people to see us actually putting the plants in we want them to get their hands dirty and smell the herbs look at the flowers going in and hopefully then this is a space that they feel is theirs that they can own and look after what's important for us at Wisley is we want to give back and we've got a long-standing tradition of creating gardens and beautiful spaces for people in community settings but what's unusual about this project is actually we're in an estate you can hear we're on a street there's people going by with buggies and chatting in the background and and what this is all about is our students learning how to do gardens in public spaces and thinking about how people will want to use them and enjoy them and that's quite different and that's a bit of an innovation I think in how we're working and we hope that the students working here over the last week will take those skills into the future into the jobs they go into right across the country the Shearwater estate in Surrey you can find links to more information videos and details of how you or your community group can get involved on the podcast page of the RHS website rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast now Question time. One of the most popular benefits of being an RHS member is that you can ask our expert team advice on any gardening problem for free throughout the year.
You can phone, email, write, or talk to us in person at our shows. We'll do our best to help. Earlier today, a group of advisors got together to tackle some of the problems you sent in over the summer. I'm joined by Lee and Becky. Hi. Hello. Our first question is from M Billington, who's written in by email and says, I have two damson trees that are over 10 years old. This year on one tree, the fruit has orangey brown, tiny blisters on it. And the other damsons have tiny pink worms inside. This makes the fruit inedible. What are causing these problems? Or is it one pest or disease causing both? Lee, what do we think? Well, I'm suspicious that it is two different problems, but they're both related. So we've got the worm, which would be plum moth. That's going into the fruit and then it's actually causing damage to the fruit as it's feeding. The damage is then infected by a type of fungus. In this case, we've got brown rot. Um, Brown rot's the one that's causing the pimply pustules to appear on the surface. This is something you can see without plum moth but because we've got both I suspect it is plum moth first and then as a result we've got the brown rot. Okay so let's start with the damage being caused in the first place so plum moth what is it and what can we do about it to prevent it? Well, as its name suggests, it is a moth and it flies in much earlier in the summer so we're typically talking around May time. Because the timing is important for getting control of this pest, what we do is we hang a little tent or pheromone trap, which you can buy in garden centres or online, and we hang it in the tree. Rather than being a proper control, although you will get some stuck on the sticky trap inside, what that's doing is telling you by the moths that are stuck to the trap that they're around, and then you can consider spraying. Sprays tend to change each spring. We get new ones that are on the market usually at that time. So that's one to check back on our website so you can find out which causes least damage and which is the best to use at that point. The brown rot, well, get rid of the plum moth, half your problem solved. But we do know that when we have very dense clusters and a lot of wind as the fruit is developing, that they'll bash together and the physical damage will also lead to the brown rot appearing. So given that we've had quite a calm year, I do think it's plum moth. But if you have seen it on your trees, pick off the ones that you can see because where the fruits touch, that fungus will cross the line between one fruit and the other and affect the next one as well. So keeping down infection it's really worthwhile picking off those affected blistery fruit. Of course, with plum moth, do be a little bit cautious if you bite into them because you might get a little extra protein than you bargained for. Excellent. Birds can cause the damage in the first place as well. That makes the fruit more vulnerable to the spores flying around. The next question is from Trevor Smith from Leicester. I've been given some dahlia plants for my birthday by my grandchildren. When should I plant them for the best results and how should I prepare the soil? We have a north-facing small garden and the soil is quite heavy clay. Well, September, they're certainly in flower, Becky, but um, is it a good time to plant? How, what should people do? So with a heavy clay soil, it's probably not a good idea to have them planted out now and then overwintering in there. In some lighter soils, you can get away with having them overwintered, but they need to be established already. Um, so what I would be doing is 
enjoying them while they're in flower still. After the first frost and the foliage blackens off, I'd be cutting down the stems and actually getting the tubers out of the pot and cleaning them down ready for the winter storage because they need to be stored above freezing. So about 5C, ideally in something like either some dry compost or some sand, just to keep them free from rotting off over the winter. Then in the spring, once there's no frost, you're planting them out or you could even pot them on and do cuttings from them. But sometimes it's good to start them off in a pot so they're growing, got shoots and then you can plant them out. Jenny, Becky's mentioned about not planting them in wet, heavy clay soils, but lots of people do try and leave them outside for the winter. So what are the keys to success? Well, ideally, you want a well-drained soil to be able to keep them over the winter in the soil successfully. You could mix in grit when you plant. That will also help. Mixing in organic matter can really help with the structure of the soil, whether you've got sandy soil or whether you've got a clay soil, and it's going to give them a good chance of surviving. But if you're going to give it a go, we would probably advise to use a dry mulch over the crown. So cut the plants back and then use prunings, anything that you've been chopping down in the garden. So say a dry mulch basically is one that doesn't go too soggy. So you don't want to grow a heap of compost over the crowns. You actually want old bracken or any prunings are just going to help the moisture drain away quite easily from the uh, crowns of the dahlias. Is depth important? Well, obviously, if they're very shallowly planted, they're going to be more susceptible to being frosted and going mushy. So which is why if you get a good depth of mulch, you're going to want that to be, oh gosh, five, six inches would be absolutely adequate. It does actually bring us on to our next question, which is by Marjorie Jones, and she's sending an email asking, should she lift the dahlias or should she not? Does it depend on the variety? It may well depend on the variety, but I couldn't possibly say which varieties are going to overwinter and which aren't. The more highly cultivated plants are sometimes, the more hybridised, the less robust they can be sometimes. I have to say, I think you're absolutely right. And there are no hard and fast rules. I do have heavy clay soil, so I tend to lift the dahlias. And some lifted will go through much easier than others. And for example, great doers like Hillcrest Royal, which has amazing spiky purple flowers, is very difficult to overwinter. But yet other varieties like Nepos, Tarahiti Ruby, they're very much easier to go through. And particularly ones where I've forgotten to lift Nepos as well, that one's gone through even on quite a wet clay soil. So uh, there is this thing of keep experimenting, but I'm quite aware that you will get failures along the way. And it's only the ones that are left that will be true stars for the leaving in all the year. Robert framed by email. My hydrangea, Zorro, despite being watered once a week over the summer, has shriveled up and the stems have gone black, although there are signs of fresh, tiny, lime green leaves at the very ends of the stems. Is it about to die? Can it be revived? Well, I think from what you've described, although it might not sound that hopeful, I think it's going to be absolutely fine. The good news is Zorro has black stems, so all is not lost. And the fact that there are tiny lime green leaves at the very, very end of the stems is also excellent news because the tips of the plant are going to be where it's hardest for the roots to get the moisture up to. So if you've got signs of life up there, then the plant lower down is going to be alive. So basically don't do too much to it. 
actually this year I've been experiencing a lot of our members coming in and actually overwatering plants. So they've been actually overcompensating and newly freshly plants. They've actually the soil is absolutely sodden and then that's caused root rot. It could be worth looking at the soil and, and actually having to see if it's that too wet. I always like to use the finger test if I'm not sure. And this is as simply as pushing your finger into the compost. Is it wet? Is it dry? If it starts to feel anything like dry, I want to put a good amount of water on. So I'm really getting the watering can, directing it in the top. And I want to see it start to gush out the bottom to know that there is sufficient to get through that layer of compost and actually be a little bit excessive. If I think it's dry or has got very dry, slipping a saucer underneath to just hold a little bit of water to soak back in and allow that compost to moisten back up is a good way of making sure that it stays in good condition. Edward Prime from Bedford has written in and he has black spot on his roses. For the last two years, he has removed all the diseased parts by pruning, but it still persists. Is there a cure or should he give up and replace the entire plants? Oh, it's always quite a shame, isn't it, when you've got really nice roses and they get covered in the black spots. Um, so he's doing the best thing he can by removing the disease so it's not overwintering. There are other hygiene things that you can practice. So after pruning, mulch around the base to cover the soil and that suppresses the spores from overwintering from the year before. There are fungicides that you can apply. Ideally, you can apply fungicides up to six times a year, but it's the thing with fungicides is they're a preventative and not a cure. So you have to start applying them before you see the black spots. So it's, it's a bit like putting on sun cream before you get sunburn. And also with black spot, if you're using different fungicides, it's best to try a different one each year. And that helps them not have a resistance to the fungicide. We haven't had a lot of black spot this year because it's been so dry. So that's been a good thing. Eileen Mayhill from London's written in. I enjoyed your feature on hedgehog friendly gardening. What plants should I grow to feed them and encourage them into my nursery garden? It's quite interesting, this one, because we spend all our time trying to get rid of pests in the garden but actually with hedgehogs you want the pests we want caterpillars in the garden for the hedgehogs so if you want to have a wildlife garden this is what you want you want beetles and you want caterpillars so anything that encourages moths any of the moth type plants planting hedges is a good idea um, like hawthorn because they get the weber moth but also you're looking at shelter so the more stuff you've got growing in the garden, the more deciduous plants, and that provides shelter. Bottoms of hedges are, are absolutely perfect for them. They need to be able to get from garden to garden, don't they? So you can actually get hedgehog doors and gateways for joining gardens, which is quite fun. W Downing emailed in. We went to a farm in Enfield this summer and a lot of the sweet corn cobs had turned into aliens. The entire crop was distorted, swollen, and each nib purple and curled. They looked grotesque, like they had exploded. What could have caused this? Yes, it's that fantastic moment when you get to say, yes, madam, you've got some smut. Smut, of course, in this case means fungal disease. It's something we see on several plants, but perhaps most dramatically on sweet corn, where the individual cobs swell up and they do become very large and then they do kind of explode, I suppose, although not obviously dramatically. And inside you can see all the black spores. That's the smut fungus. So it changes something that should be edible into something that's completely inedible. Mr Mangston, by email, 
I have a wooded area at the bottom of my garden in Essex, shaded under some chestnut trees. There are some lovely bluebells and pink and white ones, but I think they're Spanish. Should I replant these with English ones? I think the first thing is to actually assess, are they actually English or Spanish? You know, you can get white English bluebells and pink English bluebells. I get this question quite a lot on Twitter. So the English bluebell tends to have more of a crook to it and the flowers are all on one side, whereas the Spanish one is, tends to be a lot more robust and have the flowers whirled all around the stem. But confusingly, they do hybridise. So it's quite difficult to pinpoint which ones you have. But as to replanting, it depends where you live, really. It certainly does. I think if you're, say, bordering the countryside or a native bluebell wood, trying to prevent spread of Spanish bluebells into the native where they would hybridise. But if it's in more of a, an urban setting, which this could easily be, there is no connection with those wild populations. So just enjoy them. Spanish bluebells and English bluebells are very difficult to eradicate. So whether you dig them up, try and spray them off, to which they're highly resistant to weed killers, it's going to be very difficult to shift them. So trying to remove one population plant with another is an uphill struggle anyway. So you really, really need a good reason to do it if you're going to go down that track. After this year's extreme wet followed by extreme heat, we've been inundated with questions about lawn damage and lawn repair. Burnt grass, giant cracks in the soil, bare patches. It's been a tough year. Autumn is traditionally a time for lawn maintenance, but this year intensive care may be needed for many gardens. We spoke to the lawn team here today at Wisley to hear how their summer has been and to get some tips for techniques to resuscitate your grass. Hi, my name is uh, Matt Clark and I work in the turf team here at the RHS Garden Wisley. Over the summer we've had some long spells of hot and dry weather which has obviously taken its toll on people's gardens and uh, we're no different here. There's some areas of turf at Wisley that have struggled and are showing signs of having suffered from the, uh, the drought conditions that we experienced. What we're doing to uh, try and put that right is starting our, our autumn lawn care period Typically what we will do is we will scarify the lawns which can remove the dry dead material. So all that brown grass that's appeared, we can actually scratch that out, if you like, from the turf. That leaves us with some bare patches, obviously, which we then need to fill in with uh, a mixture of topsoil and some grass seed. Once the grass seed is in, it's just a case of looking after it. If we don't have any rain forecast, then it's important just to keep the seed damp, not, not over wet, but damp so that it can germinate. And then within 10 to 14 days, you should see signs of the grass starting to germinate. Also, what we'll be doing at this time of year is reducing the, the frequency of cuts. And there's also some other important aspects of the autumn lawn care regime that we need to be thinking about. One of the other things that we'll consider in terms of cutting the lawn is to reduce the frequency of cut and we would actually raise the blades so we're not taking so much off the grass but always no more than a third needs to be cut off at any one time. The scarifying process, that will remove the thatch but it's also important for removing any dead moss from the grass. If you go into the autumn-winter period with uh, significant amounts of thatch and moss, then this can hold on to the, the moisture, which then provides a breeding ground for further moss and sometimes pests and diseases. Some of the lawns here at 
Wisley get walked on by a considerable number of people during the summer, so this can increase the compaction. This may be the same at home if you've got family and children using the lawns. What we will do here to counteract that is to aerate the lawn. What we do there is we, we run over the lawn with a machine and that puts small holes into the soil and this allows air and water to penetrate the root zone. Autumn feed is an important thing. It's slightly different to our summer feed, which has a slightly higher nitrogen content. Going into autumn, the product we use has got a reduced nitrogen content and it's got increased potassium relative to the summer feed. This all helps prepare the grass for winter and gives it a head start as we go into spring next year. After the scarifying of the dead material from the, the summer drought, bound to be dry patches left in, in the lawn, these will need to be overseeded. If they're left too long as just bare soil, then there's a run the risk of weeds taking hold. So what we do is we use top dressing and a grass seed and we will apply both products to the bare patch areas and then within a few weeks we will have grass seed that's germinated. Final point really, something to consider for us here at Wisley and also at home is to make sure that any debris is removed from the grass surface. So just thinking at this time of year, particularly as we go into October, there will be leaf fall. So it's important to gather up those leaves on a frequent basis. If the leaves are left on the grass, then you run the risk of killing the grass underneath because it doesn't have any access to light. There are links to more information about lawns and lawn care on the RHS website. Well, that's almost all for this podcast. There's just time to tell you about a few of the exciting gardening events coming up over the next few weeks, including the Harlow Car Alpine Weekend. That's on the 13th and 14th of October, where you can see delightful displays of autumn alpines, buy plants and chat to experts, all for free with normal garden entry. Meanwhile, at Rosemore, there's an apple festival that's on the 6th and 7th of October, It features fantastic apple displays, tastings, planting and cultivation tips and talks. There are children's activities and trails, plus stalls selling fruit, cider and apple juice. Truly something for everyone to enjoy. Again, it's free with normal garden admission. And at all four RHS gardens, there's just still time to catch the end of our 2018 Photographic Competition Winners Exhibits, which are on display until the 30th of September. As before, links to details of these and more can be found on our programme page. We'll be back in a fortnight with a review of 2018, a year in veg, and suggestions for plants that evoke the more sedate pace of the Victorian era. Until then, from me, Jenny Bowden, and all the podcast team, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. 
The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the Rhydon. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.